welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Matthew Quick is the New York Times bestselling author of The Silver Linings Playbook, which was made into an Oscar-winning film, and eight other novels, including We Are the Light, which is a number one indie next pick and a book of the month selection. His work has been translated into more than 30 languages. He's received a Penn Hemingway Award Honorable Mention, was an LA Times Book Prize finalist, a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, a number one bestseller in Brazil, a Deutscher Jugendliteraturpreis 2016 nominee, and selected by Nancy Pearl as one of summer's best books for NPR. The Hollywood Reporter has named him one of Hollywood's 25 most powerful authors. Matthew lives with his wife, the novelist Alicia Bissett, on North Carolina's Outer Banks. I would love to find out a little bit more, and especially because it's been a little while since you've been on the promotional tour, especially with We Are the Light. How do you use the Jungian analysis? both that you went through, but also for thinking about Joseph Campbell, who's obviously influenced by Carl Jung. How do you use that in your storytelling? Because it's super prominent in this book, whether people know that's what they're reading or not. Well, that's a, it's, it's a tough one to dive into because it's, it's everywhere all at once. So, (laughs) you know, so with We Are the Light, I'm, I'm literally writing from the point of view of Lucas Goodgame, who's talking to his Jungian, he's writing letters to his Jungian analyst. So he's in analysis. So there's that obvious level right there. Um, You know, so I'd been in analysis for uh, a year when I started to write We Are the Light. And I had been blocked um, before that for several years. And so I went into analysis trying to end this block I'd never experienced ever before. I was a very prolific writer and I got sober and then I got blocked. So there was like a kind of connection there. So that was kind of the backstory of how I got into Jungian analysis. And when I entered into analysis, I realized that I was not there for the block. I was there for many other things. And my analyst quickly surmised and told me that psyche shut you down. It just said no more writing for you because I wasn't listening to what needed to happen inside of me. Um, And and part of that was because I was dulling it with alcohol for two decades. So there was a lot of things going on. But one of the things I started to learn in Jungian analysis was to, to kind of trust that the seeds for what I need to do are inside of me, you know, to go inward, stop looking outward and start going inward and start trusting. I also learned too that I am a feeling type. Yeah. And so when I write, I write best when I I dip into that sense of feeling rather than thinking. And so when I'm stressed, I'll start to think. So for example, 
you know, I might start thinking, oh, you know what? I need to have a big success in my career. I need to hit the New York Times list. I need to get another movie made. I start thinking about those things. And then the thinking part of my brain starts to kick in, which is my inferior function. And that just starts to drain me right away. And so yeah. I'll outline and I'll start to say, you know, what, what's on the market? You know, what are the popular books now? Like, what are the movies that are successful? How do I reverse engineer that? How do I catch the zeitgeist? And that is just all a recipe for complete shutdown. And what will happen when I do that is I'll just start writing all of these false starts, you know, 10, right. 20, 30, 50. They're just not me. They're me thinking. And so through through the analytic experience, I think really a lot of what I was learning to do was to trust intuition, to trust my, my feeling state, you know, to feel into a story. I'm a voice-driven writer. So a lot of times when I'm listening to those voices, they don't make a lot of sense, uh, you know, in, okay. in, in terms of, in terms of market structure. Well, so I was going to say the intellectual yeah. versus, and I say heart, but I believe yeah. it's spirit. Like for me, there's no difference between yeah. science and spirit, but it's amazing to hear you say that your own recognition that when you go to the external and it's very intellectually driven, which yeah. I, and again, I mess it up but it's just how I convey based on my work with writers is that it goes from a conscious mind thing and that you can put down words, but there's not a connection. And whereas if you drop down and it's more within that uh, subconscious or deep subconscious, that's where the feeling part is. Yeah. And I think I always did that intuitively in my, my process But then, of course, you get success and you think, oh, I have to amplify this. I've got Mm -hmm. to replicate this. And there's a lot of other voices. And then there's people um, that are giving you notes on screenplays. And then there's new editors and their agents and everybody has a voice. And that's where things get complicated. Uh, You know, so this time around, what my analysts kept saying to me was that I wasn't writing the book, which at first would make me so angry. I'm like, yes, of course I'm right. And he's like, no, you're not writing the book. Like you've got to get out of the way of the book so that it can come yeah. through. And so one of the things that happened with We Are the Light was that I had my wife say to me, you know, you're blocked, but you can write letters to people. Why don't you write another epistolary mm-hmm. novel? You know, and yeah. I said, I've already done that. A lot of people don't like them, you know, they don't sell. And then a couple months later, my friend, the writer, Nick Butler, said the exact same thing to me. And I started thinking, ah, you know, should I try that? And I resisted that for months. And then when I wrote the words, Dear Carl, it was like writer's block over. Like this book had to be written in letters. I didn't want to write this book in letters. It would not come through me in any other way. And there are plenty of people that have opinions on that. You know, there are people that don't like a book written in letters. Why did Matthew Crick do that? It was not a choice. It was not something that I I wanted to do. It was something that needed to come through me. Um, And so, and I, so I think with the Jungian work that I've been doing and I'm still doing to this day, you know, my analyst sometimes says, you know, I've got to broaden my ego. And, and, you know, a lot of times people think, Oh, ego means, you know, you're some, narcissistic person that you know is but like what he means is that you have to broaden your ego so that it allows for you to be other things so mm-hmm. ego wants to say oh i'm not the guy who writes a book in letters but it's my job to say yes you are that guy because that's what needs to happen you know or mm-hmm. I, I 
whatever it is, you, you, you have to submit to this process to something that's, that's bigger than you, greater to you, greater than you, you know, and of course in Jungian work, we call that individuation, you know, trying to find out like what your purpose is. Yeah. And so that to me is, was something that was always important to me as a person. It was always important to me as a writer, but the deeper I went into the business of writing, the easier it is to sometimes forget those things, yeah. you know, um, so. It's true. Well, we live in that world. I love that over and over, <laughs> you're also talking about a sort of surrender, which yeah. uh, hands up. So even if I were sharing this with another writer, and if I go back to say, Joseph Campbell, and I mostly recommend a skeleton plot point, <laughs> because yeah. I believe even if it well, pantsing has its own issues, but more so that you don't take the magic out. Right. So mm-hmm. you you are almost invited to drop down from the intellectual, the external validation. We live in a very externally uh, driven world. I, I would say masculine, but obviously we all have all the sides in us. But it's absolutely beautiful how you've said early on you were doing that intuitively. And it was when you made a great big shift in your life, which was positive, but not easy. Right. Yeah that then it felt hard because now you're thinking your way through it and or trying to be comfortable when you are just literally living in in discomfort. So you knew how to do it. I love too that you were sharing about that surrender, surrendering your way into the story and being willing, maybe kicking and screaming like I am when I don't want to do something, (laughs) to doing it in the epistolary format because that's not what people want. But you got those messages from more than one person and obviously very trusted people. And suddenly you had your way in. It was, I'm assuming, different from your other books. How do you normally find your way in? And when I say normal, obviously, every book is slightly different. Did you just fall into it where characters, you said characters talk to you, but you don't always know what they're saying. So how do you find your way into a story? You know, for me, it always starts with a voice. It always starts with a character. What do they want? Who are they? What don't they know about themselves? What lies are they telling themselves? And so the way that I operate is I kind of try to psychoanalyze a character and I I let them talk to me and I look for their blind spots. Um, You know, so with Silver Linings, which is my first novel, you know, Pat Peoples, you know, he's going home. He thinks his wife is still in love with him when she's not. Everybody knows it. You know, he's he's not aware of what, and, and that's where the comedy is, is that we see things that he doesn't see about himself, mm-hmm. which in Jungian work is, is called shadow. Um, you know, so like, what is the character's shadow? What do they need to integrate into their lives? You know, so for Pat, what he needs to integrate into his life is the fact that his wife is gone and she's not coming back. So when Tiffany comes, she she helps him to to integrate that information. And so like, that's the transformational process. The way that I find a story is that I start listening to the character and I start writing down what they're telling me. And yeah. so what they want to tell you often is not the story because 
they're trying to tell you what they their ego wants you to know about them. So Pat's story when he came to me was that I'm getting my wife back and it's going to be amazing. I'm going to work out. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to get my wife back, you know? Yeah. And I said, that's not the story. Like the thing that he doesn't know is that the wife is long gone. And that's the story, you know, it's coming to terms with that. So that doesn't happen on day one. You know, my process usually is I hear a voice, I have an idea, and then I spend several months to years writing false starts, getting to know that character. And I compare it almost as if, uh, you know, like almost like dating, you know, like you go on a date with somebody, like they don't download their whole psychological profile into (laughs) you on day one. And if they did, that would probably... Send you running. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to spend time, you know, to get to know this person and know this character. And so for me, that can be that can be frustrating because I'm always as an intuitive creative, like I just want to dive in and go. And like once I know it, like I, I write very, very quickly. But the getting to know the character process is very frustrating for me because I'm just looking for that in. I'm looking for that secret. I'm looking for that shadow information to to really flesh out a narrative. And until I have that, I can't kick in and just go. Once I know the character's secret, once I know their voice, their voice, once I know what they want, what they're, you know, lying to themselves about, then I usually can can write very quickly. So We Are the Light, my my latest book, I started trying to write this in 2014. Mm. And it was years of trying to find this voice and, and putting it away and coming back to it and putting it away. And when people ask me, like, how long did it take you to write this novel? I wrote the first draft in, I think, four weeks, but I had been working on it since 2014. So that was, you know, seven years, you know, so it's, it's how you look at it. Like I'd done the work to get to know this character and get to know what I wanted to say. Mm. So it's, it's it's work, you know, it's getting to know this person. And, you know, my wife is a very different type of novelist. You know, she does the 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 story arc and she puts um, all these like little cards on the wall, you know, and she maps out all the characters and, you know, she's very much a plotter, you know, and yeah. that's just, that doesn't work for me. And, and so I think I want to make it clear when I say, you know, I'm a pantser or I'm an intuitive creative or like I'm using you know, I'm using feeling function. There are plenty of writers who their dominant function is thinking, you know, and they, they do it completely different. It's no right or wrong. That's yeah. just what works for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it depends too. So even when you're talking about uh, some people don't like this format of novel, I didn't want to give it to them because, you know, you're going to, well, number one, you're going to get pushback <laughs> from somebody somewhere yeah. just because uh, through no fault of your own. But I think what I love hearing you and especially you contrasting your wife's process there, as you said, there's no right or wrong, but it's how willingly do you sort of, there's still surrender and plotting, right? Because I would still guess that even if she's plotted, things change because as you write, you discover, I have a writer who, who's a pantser as well. And she has really struggled very similar to you in that, it can take a long time. And then when it happens, she can spend ridiculous amounts of time writing it and like losing sleep. And I will never recommend anybody lose sleep, but she's a binge writer. Yeah. But what you're sharing too, that I think a lot of writers need to understand is just like the book on the shelf is not the first draft that they wrote, but also that sometimes we can have these characters or some stories take a lot longer to fully process 
within us. Mm -hmm. And then the, the most productive writing, say, is over a shorter period of time. But that's because you've spent so much time with them. Have yeah. you written other books concurrently? So you've got this one, you sort of they're there. So we'll say Lucas Good Game. He was sort of in there. You just didn't know what his story was. I always have trouble because I can look at publication dates, but I also know that they're not necessarily reflective of when something was yeah. written. Do you do that concurrently or as an intuitive feeling writer, do you try to stick with one project at a time? Uh, I try to do one at a time. I'm best one at a time, but I have worked on different projects, particularly with screenplay writing. Yeah. Um, where you have to kind of jump, which is a little bit of a different process. Because when I'm writing screenplays, I'm I'm usually working with an actor or a director, definitely producers. So it's more of a collaborative feel. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's less intimate than the novel writing. Yeah. But I am definitely best focused on one. Th that's how I would prefer to work. Uh, it's just on one thing. That's amazing. Usually, if I yeah, I, I you sort of give me the segue <laughs> naturally. Can you talk a little bit about, so you've got had more than one of your books made into a movie. I read a little bit and again, having walked next to authors and knowing that the whole process for, from optioning through to actually seeing a, a project on screen is longer <laughs> than, than most people would like to dream. There's all the excitement and I say celebrate when you can. And yeah. it may take a long time. It looks to me like Silver Linings Playbook was a bit like that. Like it had different people connected. And then, you know, because it's over time and there's money and stuff. And ultimately, you were part of this the conversion from novel to screenplay. Is that right? With, with Silver Linings, I was, I was not involved at all. Oh, you weren't? Okay. No, da David O. Russell wrote the screenplay. And I was not brought in at all until it came time to promote. And then oh, wow. they, they said, watch the movie. And if you like it, we will include you in the promotions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay. So that's why your name was in there. Yeah. You're just like, yeah, I like it. Uh, I, that's amazing. Well, how did, <laughs> looking at that one in particular, and then we'll talk about the second one that I just rewatched because I didn't know it was yours. I just didn't click mm. into me the first time mm. I'd watched it and I watched it again. What did you, what do you love? And maybe even spreading it out. So not just your own project. What do you love about the screen writing process, especially if it's conversion from a novel to a screenplay? And, and what would you change maybe with the view of like, as an author of novels, what's good about it and what's kind of less well, appealing? You know, the, the first thing that comes to mind, you know, is it's a 26, you know, like Silver Linings is a $26 million ad for your book. So that's really good. You know? so that's, a, <laughs> True. that's a very, a very nice thing. Um, you know, I had been an admirer of David O. Russell's work for a long time. Um, so it was, it was a great honor to see him adapt that. And, you know, the novel is, is quite different than the, than the movie. You know, mm -hmm. when you watch the movie, you really do see David's fingerprints. You know, that's really his story. And, mm -hmm. you know, the characters are mine. The backbone is mine. You know, it's in some of it is even some of my lived experience. But David really made it his own. And it was really interesting to see the choices that he made and to see it go through that filter. Um, because you saw that the story was universal in ways that I, I hadn't really imagined, you know, so some of the choices that he made were 
were interesting. So I learned a lot from that process too. You know, I learned, you know, why did he, I, you know, I, I had some of the questions I even asked, like, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Or, you know, you just kind of learn. So that was, that's one thing that I love uh, about it. You know, in terms of writing the screenplay, because I've written the, the screenplay for We Are the Light, and we're, we're out to directors right oh, now, man. is for me that that's a, it, it's like revisiting the story, but taking something that's so introverted, you know, mm-hmm. and especially with this novel that's written, you know, almost like it's a diary, and extroverting that and making it visual on the screen is a very different reality. So even with, you know, when I watch Civil Lines, why did David do this? Why did David do that? Then I write a screenplay, ah, like that's why, you know, because Mm -hmm. we're not in somebody's head anymore. We need to show this visually on the screen, which is a much different task than showing somebody's internal thoughts with words and metaphor and uh, all the things we do in a novel. So they're they're very different skill sets and Mm -hmm. they are, very different mediums. And so to me, it's been exciting to, to kind of expand uh, my storytelling capabilities. And the more that I write screenplays, the more that I, in some ways, when I'm watching a film now, I can't turn that off because yeah. I'm evaluating all the decisions, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes I'll watch something and I'll, I'll just see the economy of, of the words, um, mm. you know, they'll get somebody across with just a certain simple amount of words, or they'll just show a certain image on the screen. Uh, like I just rewatched the movie Coda and at the end, yeah. spoiler alert, everybody. Yeah. Um, when, <laughs> when the young girl is a singer and the father's deaf, he doesn't understand what it is. Like he, he actually puts his hand on her throat while she mm. sings to understand. Like it's such an image that captures so much in, in just a few seconds. And I said, wow, like that, that, that person now that scene, that that's a great bit of writing, you know? So you, you look at, you look at film in a different way too. And it, it gets you excited. Um, and I think that the more that I write screenplays, the more I find my novels becoming a little bit more visual too, um, and vice versa. So that's it's, so interesting. It's yeah. I think that I was considering We Are the Light, <laughs> and I was thinking it is really interesting that challenge you pose that you're taking something that is visual in someone's head. And look, I only recently found out not everybody has that capability. Like it's a really small yeah. portion of people who don't, if you say picture an apple, they don't. Uh, that blows my mind because for me, yeah. everything is visual. I think We Are the Light was really visual, but you're right. There is an economy. And then you're choosing what's the most powerful way to convey what the point of this scene, like, or what the point of this dynamic is. What's going to yeah. move somebody? And being an intuitive writer already, I can see how that's a benefit. And also that part having worked with another person who writes novels and screenplays is I think she uses screenplays to outline now as a way to get. So her, her outline now is just like a really skeleton draft. It's the entire story. Um, But finding a way to move it out of an individual head and into a collective and trying, like you said, with David O. Russell, finding those universal things that when you were writing it, I mean, probably they're universal if we have a collective unconscious and all of this, it's probably, but you're experiencing it on this individual level. Absolutely fascinating. Well, the other one I watched, and I don't know if you adapted the screenplay for sort of like a rock star, which is on Netflix mm. under all together. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. It's a really different story and obviously yeah. a different market, more of a YA market, but yeah. I think so many adults read young adult 
did you do that conversion too, or was it a different connection you had with moving that well, to screen? I worked on that project for a long time. And I wrote many, many drafts of the screenplay with a very famous actress that uh, I won't drop the name. And yeah. so we were working on it for, for years. And the project had a bunch of different producers that were moving it from place to place. And so there was kind of a triangle of, you know, it was Netflix, the actress, and me, and trying to make those three things agree didn't happen. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and, I, and I tried so many times to make that work and ultimately it didn't happen. And so what happened was they um, got different people to bring in and rewrite the screenplay. So I actually am credited on that, yeah. but there's literally not a line of dialogue in the movie that I wrote. <laughs> so it's a very, it's a very strange experience for me. Um, the, the movie is, is, a pretty big departure from the novel in some ways. And some people don't feel that way, but that one was a harder one for me to watch because I had Mm. spent a lot of time thinking about that and developing it and then Mm. ultimately handed it over to other people that did their own thing with it and rightly so. But it was a strange experience for me. So, you know, with this situation with David, I was never involved in the creative process. And so like, I just, I saw the film, I read the screenplay and I saw the film and it was like, Oh, this is interesting. You know, is this yeah. what David did with it? But with Rockstar, it was a little bit different because I'd spent a long time envisioning what I thought the film should be and mm-hmm. working with this actress and kind of dreaming and hoping. And so that was a, a much different experience for me. Um, yeah. And it's not to say that it's bad or I'm not grateful or anything like that, but it was it was hard to watch that movie without the backstory of, of what I had gone through. So it wasn't mm-hmm. fresh. Um, mm. So that and maybe that's that that, the challenge. So, it, and which isn't to say, as you said, it's it's good or bad. But as someone who wrote the original work and was involved in an adaptation, the challenge yeah. is there are so many other people that may be involved that you don't know exactly where it's going to go, and so. Yeah. There's a sort of, I don't know, do you get to a place where you said it was easier to be potentially delighted or just surprised, which is also, I think, a positive reaction to David O. Russell's is harder to stay detached when you've sort of been involved and then you're not and it's like a form of your story, but you were so attached for so long. It's tough to say. I mean, because with, with you know, David is such a gifted director and, you know, we, we went to the Oscars and, you know, I mean, it was this mm-hmm. magical, magical, huge ride. So you really can't compare the two experiences because one was so like fairy tale epic. And and the other one is was a great experience. And I'm I'm glad the book was made into a, a Netflix movie, but they're really very different situations. I think in the last several years, like just going through the Hollywood experience, you, you get you get banged up, you get numb, and then you start to see what the game really is. And I think yes. with silver linings, I, I was very young. Uh, it was my first time through and it was this I, I didn't know how lucky I was, you know, I'd, uh, it was just this kind of surreal experience of traveling the country and doing media tours and, you know, going to the Oscars. And, you know, I think there's, there's a part of you that thinks, oh, it's going to be like this every single time. And then you realize that, that you kind of went to the World Series or you had the dream first and that then you know, working in Hollywood mostly is is work. You know, it's it's mm. hustling, it's writing screenplays that never get made, it's making connections that might not pay off for 10 years. Like one of my books I, I adapted 
in 2016. And we're still trying to put that movie together, you know? So it's in Hollywood terms, it hasn't been that long, but it feels like it's, you know, if you're a patient person, great. I'm not sure what that's like. <laughs> it's all I would say. Yeah, I, think, I mean, it's it teaches you maybe. I think you just you learn that making a movie is is a really really hard thing to do, and mm. it's a really privileged thing to do. And I think it requires a certain humility that needs to be to be learned. Because I think when you're a young writer, at least I was, and I'll speak for myself. You kind of have a lot of fantasies about like what would it be like if I had my book made into a movie and what would it be like if, I don't know, if I hit the New York Times list or whatever. And and then those things happen and they're, they're not quite what you fantasized about. They're great, you know, but you start to see that as much as like you're bringing your own personal needs and your own personal fantasy situation to most of the other people involved, this is business, you know, and this is, this is a trade. And, and so I think as a storyteller, I always want to keep that, that child's heart alive. I always want to keep that, that sense of feeling, you know, that sense of intimacy, that sense of truth, that sense of purpose, all of that stuff is really important for telling a good story. But when you go to work in Hollywood, those things are just kind of, those, those are things you keep for the storytelling and the rest is, uh, is business, you know, and you try to act professional and you try to, um, you know, put yourself in the best position that you can, knowing that this is a very lucky reality for you to be working and it could go away at any moment and mm. there's no guarantees. And so mm. I think that over the years, I've learned to, to view that through more of a detached lens for your own sanity and also for your own mental health, you know, just to be yeah. frank. Um, yeah. Do you think you use that that experience? I like I said, I think you you had it all along, but it's probably obviously to another level when you're working with an analyst to help you draw these things out. You're getting to see the shadow that you can't see, right? Yeah. Do you think that now having some of those things in your conscious mind help you to navigate some of these, like I said, but it's not good or bad. It just kind of is. You're like, yep, that's Hollywood. And it just runs at a different schedule and with a different vibe than the novel writing, which has its own totally different yeah. challenges, right? Do yeah. you think you bring those things to it to help you remain detached and maybe, I don't know, sort of store them away for future characters and future... Definitely that. <laughs> Definitely for future characters. I think the analysis is great for learning about the human condition. Like there's mm. no... I think yeah. it's amazing for that. You know, in terms of, you know, I think we all go through life with coping mechanisms and defenses that to some degree are, are successful. And so I, I had a lot of success with my coping mechanisms and defenses. And so as I've been deconstructing them and analysis and kind of getting rid of them, then becomes the process of, well, what replaces those things? And yeah. so just like when I got sober, I had to learn how to write a novel without alcohol. That was that was hard to do. That took me years to figure that out. So I think that it's always trending in the right direction, but particularly with Jungian analysis, it's not about patching you up and making you feel good. It's mm. about, this is going to take you to hell and cripple you so that like we're going to deconstruct your whole personality down to the ground. We're burning everything down and then we're going to build you back up the right way. And so in, in terms of the creative process, 
a lot of times, most of us have to have some sense of confidence and sometimes some inflation. You've got to dream big, you know, in order to to get the motivation to even think that you might even beat the odds that are out there in the creative mm. market, which are insane. So I think when you, for me anyway, when I've been doing the Jungian work, it's about kind of shedding some of that inflation, shedding some of that ego in a negative sense and getting down to who you are and then learning to believe in that piece of you that is supposed to manifest in the world. And so that, that I think when you go through that process, which takes years and I'm not there yet, but I'm trying to trend in that direction. I think that would be a much more powerful tool than some of the lesser defenses that I was using in the past. But the transition can be tricky. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, <laughs> when you say break it all down, I was going to say probably not for most people like the good sales pitch for Jungian analysis. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's sort of you're either doing it directly or you could be, you know, self-medicating in any number of ways. I mean, we're really creative yeah. as humans to do that. But I think it's always bubbling in there. I remember doing dream analysis when I was in my teen years because of my stepmom who knew how to do it. So even when I heard you in an interview talk about that, I was like, yes, this is it. And knowing some of the archetypes as well, yeah. but being willing, here's maybe the hardest thing. And this is what would have been triggered so much by getting sober, being willing to sit there in full vulnerability and not with that inflation, not with yeah. that somebody saying, oh man, you're the best writer, which by the way, that's amazing to hear. I'm not ever going to say that. However, <laughs> we're more likely to hang on to the crit criticisms that we oh, have course, anyway. Yeah. But but I, I am so excited to read the next thing you write based on all the things, <laughs> not only with- No pressure. Like, no pressure. Well, you know, here's the thing. It, I wouldn't care what form it came in because for me personally, and again, I don't want to belittle intellectual works. You know, we need, we need every kind of music. As far as I'm concerned, we need totally over the top escapist fiction. And I'm more, I like memoir, but I really love fiction because it tells the truth in sometimes slightly more accessible ways. And we have the ability to maybe draw out those archetypes, right? That, yeah. that we don't always know how to do if we're reporting it as if we're, this is real life because people aren't consciously aware of it. But even if all you're doing is being in full vulnerability and surrender and putting that out, that would yeah. move me. And that to me is the point of storytelling. So I'm totally biased, I will admit, but I want to see the transformation. Uh, even if it's yeah. tiny, I want to see something real, right? That I can say, wow, that was profound. That was we I appreciate are the light. So yeah. And I think, you know, I, in the Jungian work I've been doing, I think it's pushing me to see more and more. I don't want to say that I didn't have control over the trajectory of my career. I didn't have control over, but I think there's a big part of me that wants to say, oh, I did that. So therefore I can do this next thing. Yeah. And I think the Jungian work has been teaching me that there's been something trying to come through me that I don't have a lot of control over. 
And so when I look back on my career, there's a lot of things, both good and bad, that don't make a lot of sense to me, even in retrospect. Like Mm. when the good things have happened, I don't know why they've happened. Sometimes they seem very random. Sometimes they seem almost coincidental. And when the bad things happen, I don't really understand those either. The thing that I've been trying to really focus on in my work is that there's some type of path and there's some type of force that is pulling me through this. And it's my job to be the leaf in the stream. You know, that's really what it is. So, you know, a good friend of mine, his daughter is in college and she doesn't, she never has read ever. And she, she's infatuated with Colleen Hoover novels. And this, this kid is just reading, like she cannot stop reading these books. And, you know, there's a part of me that says, oh man, I wish I could get some Colleen Hoover money. I wish I could read these <laughs> books I was selling all over and be on the, every single number on the bestseller list. But it's not my dharma to write that type of Yes. Book. It's just not, you know, and that, it doesn't mean that hers are better and mine are worse or vice versa. It's just right. that it was her dharma to write those types of books. Or, you know, when I went to Newark Airport and I see, you know, a 50-foot picture of Harlan Coben, who I've met and blurred my book. He's a wonderful man. And I see him blowing up on Netflix. It's part of me that yes. thinks, oh, I'd like to have a Netflix friend. But like, it's not my dharma to write thrillers. Like, that's just, yeah. that's not what I'm supposed to do on this earth. And and more power to Harlan. He's, he's a wonderful person. I've met him. But that's just, you know, it's just going to cause me a lot of pain and suffering if I say, how come there's not a 50-foot picture of me in the newark airport you know well if that doesn't sound horrifying (laughs) i know right i don't i don't want to i get it (laughs) but but i i just think that and i've lost a lot of time on this is trying to just not be you know when i lose track of being grateful for Mm -hmm. just this reality of me matthew quick and like i write these books and and when i was a teacher i used to say this all the time to other teachers because they would you know, you'd have curriculum discussions and they'd be, I hate this book. I'm never teaching this book. And I would say, you know, the book that you hate might save one of your students' lives, you know, and because you're saying you hate it and not giving it to them, like you're restricting their access. And and I try to think about that. Like the book, sometimes my least popular book might be somebody's favorite book. Or, and I've mm-hmm. literally had people say, this book saved my life, you know, and it might be a book that was overlooked or whatever. And so realizing that there's this, there's this kind of larger work that's going on around the work that I don't really have any control over. And I, and I try to think about that a lot, that most of the people that read my novels or interact with them, like I'll never hear from, they'll never write a review online. They'll never tell me, but it's out there. It's sending out who you are as this kind of gift to the world and then accepting the reality of whatever that is, the cost and the reward. And so I think the trick, and the tricky part for most writers that I know is that you get emotionally depleted. You get, you've drained the well, and then you start looking for that well to be replenished, you know, from strange sources when mm. the replenishment is always going to come through you and within and from who you are. And so I think that's the, that's the battle right there, at least for me. And I, and I still struggle with that battle is realizing that, you know, you have an experience, you, you, you put some together, some art, you put it into the world and things happen. And regardless of whatever happens, you, you've got to do it again, you know, and mm. good, bad, or indifferent. 
if, if that's what being a writer is, it means you sit down and you do it again and you find a way to do it again and again and try to become more and more authentically you and, and put that into the world. And that is also the work of Jungian analysis as well. It's sitting down every week with your analysts and trying to find the real version of you and carving away all the false versions until there's nothing but this who you were meant to be when you were incarnated in, in this in this world. And so I think that the two tasks are very similar if you can keep it pure. And of course we all have to pay bills and we all have to you know, deal with the realities of the <laughs> yeah. world. So true. And I am I, not I don't have this on lock by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> this is an aspiration for me. Yeah. So, well, yeah. so that will be my last I mean that's Amazing. Sort of a mic drop moment, at least for me. Are you working? I know you said you're working on some screenplays or you're doing some screenwriting. Have you got a new character sort of floating around? I do. I wrote a a novel in the fall. And my wife is my first reader and she did not like it. <laughs> so it was like a very <laughs> sad, it was a very, she's also my biggest fan in the world too. So she's yeah. a very good test. And so she thinks it should be from the point of view of different characters. So I'm still trying to figure this novel out, but I like the idea of it. I just yeah. don't have the truth of it yet. So that's been my struggle for the last couple of months, but I feel like I'm getting closer. So yeah. Well, crossed. look, you're still, you're still working on it. I love hearing that too. I often talk with writers about alpha readers and I mean, we're used to beta readers yeah. um, and it sounds like your wife is sort of a combo, maybe more the beta reader, but an alpha reader, depending on whether people do this. And it's not something I usually recommend sharing your work as you're writing it, unless you need somebody to say, keep going. So an alpha reader would be the one saying, I love it. Keep, you know, keep working yeah. on it because yeah. for everyone, editing is a given. And then editing some more is a given. Like you, yeah. nobody escapes the editing. Nobody's written their magnum opus and it's perfect as it is. And a publisher says, great, we don't need anything to do except for slap the cover on this. Yeah. All good. <laughs> but I love that you've got that partnership and that it still keeps you, even though it would certainly be challenging to hear, I've just spent all my time and I wrote this. <laughs> you don't like it. It was very but... challenging. It was a sad, <laughs> it was a very sad few weeks in my household, but uh, it was necessary. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but then you take it and you sit with it and then you say, but it, this story, I know yeah. I need to tell it. I just haven't found the way that it needs to be told. And having faith that if you keep doing the work, you're going to do Sometimes. it, meaning your own. Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. I've heard Neil Gaiman say that he's had several things that go in a drawer yeah. and then we'll look back at it and something might be salvageable years later and other yeah. things are like oh i loved it but you know what that's probably just for the memento pile not really yeah, but i wrote a novel before we have the light that alicia also hated <laughs> and that just went away and it was one of those moments where i looked at her feedback i looked at the criticism and i, and I was like yeah this just doesn't work you know and it just it just went away and i had to move on and i've had those moments too and I, so i think there's you need you need the truth tellers in your in your life. You need somebody that that can be honest with you and for your own sake, you know, that you can trust. And mm -hmm. and I think sometimes you write something and there's salvageable things, sometimes not. You know, with We Are the Light, I wrote many false drafts through years and I never thought I would finish that novel. And then 
one day I did. So, mm. you know, I, I think there's no fast or hard rules with it. It's just you put out work and some of it is, you know, you can resurrect it and some of it you can't. You know, I yeah. think Stephen King and on writing, he said, you just write and write and write. And then someday someone comes and throws the magic dust on it and it just yeah. comes alive. And and I, I think that that's in some ways true. You know, I think it's, I don't know why sometimes I write a novel and it just doesn't work and I have to put in an and sometimes it's publishable and someone makes a movie of it. I don't know, you know, other than the quality of, I know the quality of the work is better, but I'm doing the same thing. I'm sitting down at the desk. I'm trying to do the same thing. So it's yeah. mysterious that way. It's mercurial. Yeah. Well, it sort of reminds me of what you were saying about some of the great things that happen and some of the bad things that happen. and. Yeah. For either of them, you're not always sure, even in retrospect, why, what, you know, and I know that our logical mind would like to be able to say, if this, then that, you know, I did this yeah. and this, and that's why I even noticed that with Lucas Goodgame, obviously, <laughs> looking back at some of his relationships. And I think because of some of the themes that you have, actually, even all the way back, right, to Pat Peoples, this want to have more control over our lives. And some of that control is an understanding. This step, yeah. then this step, then this step leads to this. And in We Are the Light and Lucas, number one, struggling with something that he did that is so opposite to anything he was capable uh, capable of and carrying the shame when yeah. externally, like you said, the so maybe that's his shadow part and even right up to the end this fear of being it's even outed to himself it's really a nuanced way that you wrote this where his deepest fear is to have somebody that he then mentored say i blame you and you did this horrific thing yeah and and the the feeling of i don't know i keep saying surrender but it's, i don't know if i would call it redemption maybe you can share what you were thinking when you wrote it but just this feeling of no one calls him out even though they know right and that was his thing thinking maybe nobody nobody knows really or maybe his younger brother didn't know but i think he did and the yeah. goodness eclipse that right we yep. nobody to your point especially with Jungian analysis this was that conversation in Zibi's book club and you were talking about the difference between Lucas's uh forward push especially earlier on on how do we solve this wound whereas Sandra is solving the wound differently and that you had such respect still for Sandra. And I really appreciated that, even though, yeah, I probably would veer to one side, but it was not a right or wrong. And you'd had a really great conversation about, uh, it's not love and hate, but, uh, what's the opposite of love? These two sides of the coin, the light and the, the shadow, and one of them being about power. Yeah. That I think it was about love and, and the power are yeah. the shadow of each other, which Jung says. And so if you want to have power over somebody, you, you can't really love them. And yeah. if you love somebody, you don't want to have power over them. Yes. Um, and I think with both of those characters, Lucas, his story is that he's confronted, he's forced in a horrific fashion to conf confront his shadow in a crisis situation. And then it just, he, he's so shocked by what he's capable of. Yes. That he reverts to this almost childlike state where he uses this imaginary world as like a mm. blanket to keep his psyche from fracturing. Mm. And the whole story is about 
gently testing the world of reality to see if other people can handle his shadow. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the Jungian work that I do, and in many ways, this is my story too, is sometimes when we experience trauma or we experience difficulty or pain, we inflate ourselves to say, you know, like we, we are the author of our story, like we can control this. And then we make the rest of the people, you know, responsible for all of those negative mm. things. So surely, like Lucas, because he's done this horrific, violent thing, surely the rest of the world must be violent. Not me. Like, surely the rest of the world is going to attack me because I can't handle the fact that I did this violent thing out of yes. necessity. So he projects that onto the world and the world becomes terrifying. And mm. so a lot of the Jungian work that I do is reclaiming those projections and you know it's it's most of the time it's not the world it's you <laughs> you know it's, yes. it's it's you know obviously there's exceptions to this but when we're talking about paranoia when we're talking about fear when we're talking about anxiety not when we're talking about somebody's literally attacking you yeah. but when we're afraid of these things it's usually because we're projecting our own the things that we can't tolerate are about ourselves. We're projecting them onto other people and then we're learning to be afraid about the world. So that's what Lucas is doing. You know, he's, he's integrating shadow and he's slowly testing to see if people can tolerate the full humanity of him. Because Lucas is somebody who has this very curated, mm-hmm. people-pleasing, helper, caring profession type life. He's the guy that's going to help your kid get through high school. He's the guy that's going to save your kid through the mental health experience. He's not the guy that has this explosive part that can be violent and angry. And, you know, that's in his shadow. But the beautiful thing about the story is people see Lucas for what he is and they embrace the totality of his humanity. And that is something that is a wonderful gift when, when anybody gets to have that. Uh, and I think that's. That's something that we all intuitively want, but it's also something in this modern world that we kind of deny each other more and more. I was (laughs) going to say, especially, yes, in Australia. I mean, yes, universally, I would say. Yeah. But certainly looking at the U.S., there's a reason why this is, and not just because it could reflect things that happen or have happened in the US, but our responses to it, right? And a lot about the shadow and the division that people, so it's nice to have, to your point about maybe saving somebody's life. Um, Fiction is a beautiful, to me, a beautiful door, right? It's not confrontational, like here, I've got this manifesto that's reality driven. And so you must read it, which feels very luxury. You're giving all of the same stuff, but in a way that people can access it through the character, like maybe not Lucas, because there are all these other characters and maybe they can access some of the the lessons you've learned through the story that you're taking them through and maybe shift the way that they look at it without it being prescriptive, if that makes sense. It's probably why, I mean, just another layered on. Another reason why I loved the book and was so moved by it was because it dealt with all of these things in that very realistic way. Part of the reason that so many people resonate with your other works too, even if you were doing it not as, and again, forgive me, just thinking fully present. Like now you you haven't got a year fully present when you're doing these things and it can be challenging and painful. You were still doing it 
but now you've moved to this point where it's intuitive and intentional, right? Uh, well, I think I, I know a lot more now than I used to, you know, I think, uh, yeah. And so I think as I've moved into middle age and, you know, I, I'm doing the work on myself, I, I do think that I, I like to, to see the book as We Are the Light is this next evolution of, of who I am as a storyteller, as a person, as a human being. And I hope the next one is even more so, you know, and, you know, the trick for me has been accepting that that progress on a human level is is paramount. And that for me needs to be more important than, you know, whether this gets made into a movie or how many books sell or, you know, what my rating is on Goodreads or whatever, all those other things that, that are, that do have real world consequences. You yeah. know, those are, those are important, but trusting that, if I keep progressing and becoming the human being I'm supposed to be and tell the stories that I'm supposed to tell, that some path will emerge and I need to have the courage to walk that path. And it might not look like the path that I had envisioned five years ago or even one years ago or you know, even what I dreamed or hoped for, but it'll be the path that I'm supposed to walk. And I think that's that's the trick for all creative people. And I have some very good friends who are writers. And the trick is that when our fantasy of what that path looks like comes in conflict of the reality of the path that we're, that we're offered, that's when we need to really do the psychological work to get in right alignment with where we're being asked to flow. Mm-hmm. And I think if we go on social media or we go to the internet, that that will totally destroy, you know, this process. Because it is about surrendering and, and sometimes it's about serving things that the culture might not value as much. But that doesn't mean that it's not necessary. Yes. That doesn't mean that it's not. You know, I heard Quentin Tarantino once say, and this is kind of a strange pivot, you know, to Quentin Tarantino. That's okay. He said, he said that he doesn't make movies for people today. He makes movies for people in 50 years, 100 years. Wow. Like he wants to, and, and he, you know, he's been quite successful. So it's super easy for him to say. But yeah. I often think about how many um, writers, you know, I just watched a documentary about James Baldwin, you know, and he, he had a lot of success in his life, but towards the end had a lot less success. So you think like, he was one of the most important writers in the 20th century in America. How could he have kind of fallen off at all? Like, how could people not have been reading him? But, you know, he had ups and downs with his career. And, yeah. you know, but now we don't think about, I'm sure he thought about it, you know, mm-hmm. during his life. But now we just think, God, oh, the great James Baldwin or... You know, Fitzgerald, you know, thought Gatsby was a failure. And then all these years later, we were being told it's the great, one of the greatest American novels. So I think realizing that looking through the lens of today or looking through the lens of our ego or what we think should be happening is not always a good recipe for, for serving our true purpose in life and, and for finding the art that we're, we need to put out into the mm. world. And that is, that is about serving. You know, that is about serving your purpose, your, your vision, what you're being called to, to, to channel or put into the world. And, and that takes courage, you know, it takes courage for me. And, uh, you know, that, and that's why I'm in analysis because it's, I need help. And, you know, and I think yeah. we all need to find ways to give us a leg up or some help to yeah. in that process. Yeah. Well, just knowing that, yeah, getting you back on track, because the more you are sitting there in that, one of my favorite quotes is a Matisse, creativity takes courage, mm. because that's the truth. And I've already said my bias is I want mm. to be moved and I can be moved if somebody is sharing the things that most of us are afraid to share. Sometimes 
consciously afraid and other times unconsciously afraid. We we don't know, but having creating a team, whether it be like a writing partner, a real a partner partner who also happens yeah. to be a writer and other writers and therapists. I mean, even as I mentor writers, I fully support them actually having a therapist as well, especially depending on how deep they're going with their writing. Yeah. But having, when I talk about structure, it's more about having the structure in place to keep you as a creative in that place where you're serving, as you said, your dharma, right? Because we don't control it. Colleen Hoover was not top five of Australians top 10 every week when she started. Same with Leanne Moriarty. A lot of people here in Australia would know her. And it wasn't until Big Little Lies that all of a sudden they started reprinting backlist and you couldn't walk for tripping over. So to your point, any writer, any creative doing whatever, showing up to give what they feel compelled to give to their most vulnerable and creative and intuitive, that's the point. And the rest, I do say dream big, like dream big, but then don't stay focused on that, come back. And I am just so thrilled that you're on that path and that you're continuing to create this work with that sort of structure for you so that I know the things that you're writing are going to hit those places for me and that it will go deeper. And then, like you said, with James Baldwin, like eventually it'll just hit a point, but we don't control that anyway. Right. Yeah. A book talker maybe does. Matthew, this has been an amazing conversation. Obviously, I could chat to you forever. I feel so honored that you have shared so much amazing stuff. Well, I can't wait to share this and have more people who haven't already read We Are the Light and, you know, hope that the wheels move faster because I'm impatient and see your next book out there soonish. <laughs> Or or something else. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I have no doubt that the writers who listen will be taking so much from this conversation. And I hope. Oh, thank you. It makes a lot of them feel that it's worth it to be brave, even or especially when it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's almost always uncomfortable. So (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Not getting saved. Thank you so much for chatting today, Matthew. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.